Albert the Tuna Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest in this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his fortnightly appearance on the program. It's his fortnightly appearance. He's the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, Eric Longenhagen. Eric Longenhagen is the guest in this program. As he does every two weeks, Eric Longenhagen here analyzes all prospects of particular note this week. There is considerable enthusiasm for Yon Mankata's ceiling as a baseball prospect. Of course, the same Yon Mankata who was traded recently from Boston Red Sox to the Chicago White Sox. There's considerable enthusiasm for a ceiling. Eric Longenhagen describes why. He explains why. Despite Mankata's difficulties with contact, he still maintains a high floor. It's not the reason you think. It might actually be the reason you think, but it's also a possibility. It's not the reason you think. Moving on in a discussion, nestled within a discussion of Michael Brantley as a prospect, looking back on Michael Brantley when he was a prospect. Longenagin invokes a conversation about power and separating power, separating the idea of power merely from home run power. Michael Brantley, of course, is a player who, despite a lack of great home run strength, put together multiple seasons in which he hit 45 doubles. How does a talent evaluator go about assessing power and separating home run power from extra base power in general? Finally, towards the end of the program, Eric Longenhagen utters a phrase that God himself uttered when the host of this program was born. Oh, Carson, you poor bastard. That amusing utterance and others... Not unlike it in what's to follow. What's not following now or ever, for the, at least for the time being, is a sponsor's message. If there were, of course, a sponsor's message, it would come courtesy SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. However, there is not a sponsor's message. And so we go directly to a conversation. What is it? It is a conversation with whom? Eric Longenhagen, lead prospect analyst of Fangraphs.com, Eric Longenhagen. And when does it begin? Right now. Because of you're my losing bias. it's my bias again. right so you, you, what you're talking about is ma- magic the gathering but uh, what I want to say is is that this happened I know that uh, Jeff Sullivan our colleague has decided that he will only be a fan that with regard to hockey a sport um, that he enjoys watching quite a bit that he will only be a fan that's his rule and so when he Mm. Watch like so he doesn't really pursue any of the advanced metrics because right you know I think that he does not want it to become the thing I mean he likes baseball you know for the most part he likes his job I mean he likes his no. job as much as he likes anything but which isn't necessarily that much but <laughs> it's but different I think he's, it's different but he says he says uh, I just want to watch the game and then I'll and then it's done um, have I talked so have I talked talk to you about the the Phillies World Series win and um, what that felt like for for me at the time. <laughs> this was sort of when I realized that oh, this is going to turn into a different thing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like I love baseball and I love football and basketball, but in entirely different ways. When I used to love them all in the same type of way. Um. And so I understand what Jeff's dealing with there. I like to sit back and watch an NBA game and not necessarily know uh, – like I like uh, 
Stromile Swift, <laughs> knowing full well that he wasn't an efficient basketball player. And well, I was like, like, I can enjoy that. <laughs> deserves to be noted, though, one of the brilliant um, sort of emerging phenomena in basketball is that there appears to be a huge correlation now between those aspects of the game which are most appealing, most aesthetically appealing, and also those which are most efficient. Right, yeah, the dunking and three-pointers and, yeah. Right. If you're going to take a two-point shot, definitely dunk it. That's going to be the <sighs> best. That's the best option. And then – but otherwise, you should you should hit a three-pointer, which there's something – right, it's interesting because the three-point shot, it has a sort of tremendous effect, um, de- a demoralizing effect mm-hmm. on the on the opponent. Uh, even uh, – I mean, if you're watching, if you're this sort of – if you're the person who's watching it, you're a spectator, and you're constructing narrative in real time about the game, the three-pointer has a great demoralizing effect. And the person who is endowed with the skill of hitting three-pointer after three-pointer has a sort of magic quality to them. Mm-hmm. But it's not like a sort. It's not a physical dominance. It's like because it's like it's almost like having magic, right? right? It's I mean, t- it is like having. Yeah, right. and, and, and so. But it's interesting because it's – I think that baseball has headed in this direction um, and ba- I think basketball, if it's not already there, probably will too. But it like pulls the talent you're you're searching for to an extreme because not only are three-point shots more efficient in general, but they also lead to more offensive rebounds. Like there's – I've read uh, papers where they've um, they've studied where shots – taken uh on the floor how they correlate with where the ball comes off the rim and so like three missed three-point shots lead to extra offensive opportunities more often than mid-range two-point shots and then as you move closer to the rim again those opportunities lead to more offensive rebounds as well so like taking mid-range two-point jump shots are not only far less efficient than taking threes or uh you know a attempting layups or dunks, but they also result in, like, fewer second chances. So, like, now I think you... that's This is where you see these extreme uh, three-point specialists uh, and, you know, at-the-rim specialists coming in, and maybe uh, yeah, I, I think baseball is sort of showing some of the same things with, you know, the uh, for a while there with the three true outcomes hitters, um, and I, which I still think exist to a degree. Uh, but yeah, I think it's just, you know, learning more has sort of pulled the, the talent. Learning more about what's actually valuable has sort of pulled the, the talent that uh, front offices seek into extreme uh, levels. You know what I mean? Like you're looking for these far right tail freaks who do this one very efficient thing really well, even if they're horrible at other things. Yeah, and even if they don't necessarily have all the physical skills of their their peers, Wait, I was, let me ask you this question: You could look at this. Let's do historical. It doesn't have to be back to the to the uncreated light, you know what I mean? But uh, you know, from your memory, and then maybe of current prospects, we could do this too. <clears throat> Players who, but like you're like you're the sort of this profile we're discussing for basketball. The players have – like their distribution of skills is ideal f- for 
for the most efficient version of basketball, right? Mm-hmm. Who, who, who in baseball can you think of who's, who essentially has the, the perfect skill set for the game, even if – and, you know, to play the game efficiently, even if um, this not necessarily the most physically impressive in other ways? Oh, that's a good question. Then again, it could be because, like, Steph Curry is obviously – I mean, Steph Curry is the best player probably, or LeBron James. But, but yeah, if you I look mean, at the two of them – Right. If you look at the two of them, you're like, yeah, I get why LeBron James is the best. And then you look at Steph Curry, and you're like, Kyle Hendricks. You know, Kyle Hendricks is probably that type of the type of guy you're looking for, uh, where it's not like it's easy to look at Noah Syndergaard and be like, oh, okay, that guy's really good, um, and look at Max Scherzer's stuff and know that, oh, okay, this is this is a top of the rotation type of guy, um, but. I think like Johnny Cueto has subtlety and Kyle Hendricks has a subtlety, Jose Quintana and even Madison Bumgarner really has like a subtle, uh, there are subtle things about them that make them so good. I think it's, and, then, pro- and there's an obvious thing, there's an obvious thing they lack, the, the, the pictures you mentioned, that's, that's high, high, premium velocity. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think from the, from a, an everyday player standpoint, it's probably harder to find that guy because your physical tools are such an important aspect that allow you to do these things, that allow you to hit for power, that allow you to play uh, terrific defense. Um, Ian Kinsler's always been the guy for me who's who's uh, consistently like it doesn't ever look like he's going to wow you with tools, uh, but has just he's been regularly dominant um i guess brian dozier is another guy like that who i mean i, I still can't believe dozier hit 42 home runs this year. Um, <laughs> what so about like, um jose ramirez it always ends up being the guys who like the middle infield types who always do enough of everything to have a uh a very valuable overall profile but if you took one thing away they would no longer be that player like at all Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like if you if you took Ian Kinsler off of second base and set and put him at first base, uh, you're looking you're not looking at like a six win player anymore. Like he's been a handful of times. I think like a five plus win player. I think he's been probably I want to say almost a half dozen times uh, throughout the course of his career. You're probably looking at someone who's been more consistently average, right? Um, but similarly, if you took away his power and but left him at second base and gave him uh closer to like 45 50 game power then he's also probably not a consistent like three or four plus win player he's probably also closer to that like it's he sort of has to have the complete all around uh profile if you take anything away then he's not nearly as valuable as he is which is what makes projecting second base only prospects kind of difficult right We've, I've, I think we've mentioned that type of player several times over the course of the, of the podcast, certainly as we're cranking out the org lists. Like there are these bat first, second base only types who don't have prototypical power or maybe aren't, um, like they're clearly not able to play shortstop and maybe they're only like 50 defenders at second base. Like it's hard for those guys to profile, but if everything, if everything meets 
hits its ceiling, then suddenly you go from having someone who's like not really a prospect to having a perennial all-star type of player. And it's hard to sift through who those guys are and who is not. Um, I want I want to ask you about well, at least what is what ha- a player who has been a second base only player up till now. In a moment, that's going to be Yomi Okada, who also happens to be top one of the top, the top prospect in baseball. Was also traded. You wrote about him. This is he he deserves to be mentioned. Um, Mm -hmm. In terms of this this sort of overall player, though, I wonder if I wonder how you feel about. I want there are a couple names that are occurring to me. I wonder how you feel about Michael Brantley when Michael Brantley is at his best. Um, What a cool player! Don't you think he's a cool player? Yeah, he is. You know, the first time I saw Brantley. Uh, was at Triple A. Mm-hmm. I went to see Pedro Martinez rehab in Triple A with the Phillies. So I was still this was '09. I was working for the Phillies Triple A affiliate at the time, but took the day off specifically to go see Pedro pitch. And I still have my notes from that somewhere. Um, but yeah, and Brantley Brantley hit a leadoff uh, hit a leadoff homer in that game, and that was the first time I was like, "Huh, this who's this Brantley guy?" Because uh, I was just sort of digging into into scouting in a serious yeah. way at this at this point. This was like my second. Well, he, you, you, um, 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 no, I want to say that he probably at that point had uh, like had not had a double digit home run season. And was the kind of guy who you're like it's pro it doesn't fit quite fit in center field, really good bat to ball skills, but not enough power to profile in a corner regularly, and kind of has to play center field if you're going to talk about him as uh, as an everyday player. And of course, that turned out to be when he's been healthy, um, incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because it, you're talking about. When you're when you're evaluating infield prospects, the second baseman uh, end up being a bit of the, the misfit, right? Uh, Do you think it's the same goes for left field, left field or corner outfield only type players? Well, corner outfield only who don't uh, outfield uh, corner outfield only players who don't have I don't know even average power. Maybe I mean, what would you have put on on Brantley's power if you were just watching him at that stage in his career? Probably like. A- a four, yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I know he had what that one year where he hit twenty. Was it twenty? Some it was a, twenty. Uh, I think it was twenty. Okay. Yeah. yeah um, and I mean that. You know, I don't know that that's going to be a consistent thing for him going forward. Well, likely not, given his injury struggles. Right. Even, but in the independent of that, I'm not sure that would have been a consistent thing. But, but, um, what I'm uh, what I'm trying to say is, regardless of that, uh, home run output may, you know, is is a nice way to it's a base way to grade out game power. But I think, like, given all the extra base hits that he produces in general, even if he's only like a 12 to 15 home run a year guy, if he's going to consistently hit 35, 40 plus doubles, then maybe that merits more than a 40 power grade anyway, even if we're only talking about 12 to 15 home runs. You know what I mean? I think you – I do know what you mean. And, in fact, this is a thought that I've had, a fleeting thought that I've had mm-hmm. on occasion, but uh, never thought to put it together. But you're right. Power, I think we could – I think I – I think I'm certainly guilty of thinking only about home run power when I think about power. Uh, and my guess is uh, – 
while there's probably some correlation between home run power and other sorts of extra base hits, mm-hmm. uh, that you find many cases in which I think like Todd Frazier this year, I don't know, you know, guys who hit markedly more, he was, was he hit markedly more home runs than he did doubles plus triples. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and so you find that sort. And of course, there are other players like uh, Juan Pierre. You know, I mean, that's an that's another that's an extreme example. Nick, uh, Nick Markakis has always been the guy that comes to mind for me when I think about guys who don't have that uh, prototypical corner outfield home run power, but their feel for contact is so good that they you know they stroke out like forty plus doubles every year. Yeah, Brandon so Belt was that kind of prospect where I when I saw him in fall league. I was like, okay, this guy might only hit 15, 18, 20 home runs every year, but his but is also like that type of. I think I actually put a Marcakis like offensive profile comp on Belt when I first saw him. In two thousand, um, to your point, in two thousand fourteen and fifteen, Michael Brantley, averaging fewer than six hundred plate appearances in each of those two seasons, hit uh, recorded forty five doubles in each of them. Yeah. So there you go. That's a lot of doubles. Yep. Hey, here's the other player I want to ask you about. Uh, no, let me see. I put the preposition at the end of the sentence. About whom I'd like to ask you uh, before we move on to Yon Makata. And that mm-hmm. is a player who I had occasion to think of this morning when I was uh, adding some uh, lame commentary to Dan Zaborski's Zips projections for the Tampa Bay Rays, and that's Kevin Kiermeyer. Mm. Kevin Kiermeyer has averaged – Slightly more than four wins in each of the last three seasons, or over the last three seasons. Um, and yet I think he was something like a 31st round draft pick. When did you first become aware of Kevin Kiermeyer? And at what point, and perhaps it was after he debuted in the majors, did you believe that he was going to be a credible big leaguer? I, uh, I'd like to go back into my notes and see, I wonder if, was that the year that I didn't come out here to Fall League in 2012 when Kiermaier was here? Um, I never saw him in the minors. I became aware of him when he skipped uh, double, like um, from AA to AAA. So I think he got like a late year. He had like a few appearances in 2012 in AAA, and I may have seen him with Durham. Maybe playoffs as well. He maybe yeah. played the playoffs during that year. Yeah, um, that was probably when I first became aware of him. I did not. I did not think that the. Um, I thought that the lack of power would limit his ability to get on base in the big leagues, and that there was a risk he'd only be a fourth outfielder or below average everyday player, uh, because I, you know there was a lack of power. His approach was great. The contact skills were good, um, but I didn't see I, – I thought major league pitchers would be able to attack him free of fear um, and that it might limit his offensive output to the point where he wasn't an everyday player or at the very least was like a below average everyday guy. Uh, but I didn't realize – I mean I knew he was incredible defensively in center field and had uh, at le- probably like a seven arm too. Uh, but I didn't, I don't think I realized at the time how valuable that would be. And even if he was going to put up fringy offensive production in general, uh, that he'd be, you know, like an easy roll six, roll seven type of player. If yeah. you, uh, now would you, would you come across a player like Kiermaier who is, 
no, in this particular case, in his particular case, he's receiving considerable value from his defensive skills. Yeah. But when you come across a player like him, and maybe it's already it's already uh, a fallacy to suggest that there are players like him, uh, is he someone who forces you to r- really re-examine the way in which you uh, are looking at players? Or he adds, adds another, essentially adds another for you microscope lens under which you need to investigate players or you're yeah. just like oh yeah, he was so he was so different he, he's a unicorn etc yeah it's 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 more of i think it's more of the latter type where you need to be open-minded enough to recognize that this even though this player fits a certain archetype his skills are so extreme that he sort of breaks he sort of breaks it and uh transcends it um there are players like that from other different sort of archetypes that do it for different reasons. Jose Altuve is is the guy who who comes to mind as that little second baseman who can hit, but is so extreme that he's not that archetype anymore. Like, uh, we may have mentioned these guys on the podcast before, and I've brought them up before I know in, like, conversations. Scooter Jeanette, Cesar Hernandez... Those are like little second basemen who can hit. End of list of things they can do. They do it well enough that they're they're good major league players, albeit flawed. Mm-hmm. Altuve was that kind of prospect too. You'd put him in that same bin, but it's so extreme the level that at which he does all the things he does that he's not anything like those other two guys and is like an absolute freak. So Kiermaier kind of fits into that same situation, albeit for different reasons where. It's a glove first center fielder. Don't know how much, you know, the bat is, is gonna provide. But he's competent enough offensively and so extremely incredible defensively that, like, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, Let me ask you this question. How many states do you think you'd have to name before you correctly named the state in which, um, Kiermeyer's alma mater, Parkland College, is located? Parkland College? Parkland College. Um, How many states would you have to name, I suppose? Probably like probably between fifteen and twenty at least. I think I could yeah. I could have some educated guesses mm-hmm. based on like I'd just start naming places that have good co- smaller colleges where like the talent sort of spills over uh, into into smaller colleges and, and guys can get missed. And then I'd probably cut through the Midwest somewhere. Like after I started naming Florida, California, Texas, uh, Mississippi, that's when I'd start being like, okay, Ohio, uh, Kansas, um, uh, Illinois. Um, you did it. Did I? You did it. It's Illinois. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering. You were, you were dancing around it a little bit. You nailed it. I think it was like eight. Yeah, so you go, yeah, like just logically my brain was like, okay, start picking places where there's an overflow of talent, then start picking places that are underscouted because of uh, the weather. Here is another player, another, in this case a pitcher, who attended, uh, who attended uh, Parkland, was not actually drafted out of Parkland, but did attend it, and that's Daniel Winkler. Hmm. Yeah. He eventually went to University of Central Florida. 
drafted out of UCF in the 20th round of 2011 draft. Danny Winkler, uh, back healthy. I think you might have seen him at the in the Arizona Fall League. Um, might have. Might not maybe. have. Maybe. I have to check. It's not a name that immediately jumps out to me. Oh, Danny Winkler. He was very good. I think he like m- maybe led his level twice in uh, strikeouts or strikeout rate when he was a prospect or a quote-unquote prospect in the, in the mm-hmm. Rocky system. Yeah. Interesting. You, you're writing that down? You're writing down Danny Winkler? And he went to UCF, huh? Went to UCF, yeah. Are you writing down Danny Winkler? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Danny Winkler, down. Daniel Winkler. Oh, and he's a... Uh, he was with Peoria last year, which would have been Atlanta. He would have already have signed with Atlanta at that point, I imagine. Yeah. Anyway, or was he a free agent last year? Because he does not say, have an affiliate listed. Peoria... P- was in the Atlanta system last year, but he was gone. He was out for most of the year with injury. Okay, so then it was Atlanta. Yeah, it was yeah. Atlanta. That's all. Daniel Winkler, put him, put that guy on your radar. Uh, hey, all right. Who's the guy Before, that I have to ask about for the Braves prospect list? I suppose. Uh, yeah, you might have to. Let me say these words to you, Yon Mancata. Now listen. Hmm. We've dedicated some time here to a, a very particular set of skills, as. Liam Neeson's character in Taken would say. What's that? I don't know. What's that? The movie? Mm. It's a movie. Okay. It's a film. If you say so. It's a film. It's a part of a series of films. Taken, Taken 2, and Taken 3. In the first one, they take his daughter. In the second one, they take his ex-wife. In the third one, I don't know who they take. I have not watched the preview Liam for it. Liam Neeson? In an yeah. action movie? <laughs> what I want to say then is this: Yon Mankata, Yon Mankata has basically every skill, except. Well, no, maybe we could say two. So, he definitely the one he definitely lacks is contact all day and all night. He does not possess contact skills all day and all night. Right. I think that I think the way I'd phrase it is there's maybe kind of a red flag around the contact. Mm-hmm. That's how you'd say it. Yes. And red flag around contact is more significant than red flag around other of the tools. For example, sure. you're like, well, he doesn't have a great arm. Well, right, yeah. because the contact allows everything else that makes him so tantalizing to to play. No, I was discussing you and Mikata, uh the other day with Dave Cameron. And Cameron was like, and you, you know, I'm naturally predisposed – Against this sort of player, the the, the toolsy, um, and that that's a bias of mine. I'm pre- I'm absolutely willing to reveal yeah, that. You're gonna wanna you're gonna wanna change the way you phrase that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm naturally biased against guys with tools. Is not a good way to start conversations with anybody in baseball. You're gonna okay, wanna right. find a different way to phrase <laughs> that. <laughs> well, no, but I can I am allowed to say that because of the way of the prospects I. And I am typically monitoring. So if right. you say if you take away the top hundred prospects, then that might be yeah that might be a fine thing to admit, right? But um, well, no, because just in life generally, people who with natural talent abhor me. They <laughs> they <laughs> I, I think it's terrible, um, and so I, I naturally identify with you know Sherman Johnson. Mm-hmm. Max Rock. 
<clears throat> but Yon Mankata, so so Cameron was like, listen, Carson, you're talking about the high floors that that guys who have excellent contact skills have, right? You know, previously right. I've you know really liked Jose Ramirez, for example. That's an example of that sort of player. You say, oh, he's got such a high floor. He's like, Carson, you have to consider that Yon Mankata also, like in ways you're not considering, Carson, has has a high floor too. And, and it was revealed to me, this is elementary, but it was it brought home to me more strongly than it had been previously looking at Byron Buxton's season this year because mm. i think like even though you know the num- the hitting numbers were not that great maybe 85 wrc plus you know 15% below league average whatever okay. he was still nearly a two win player in like 350 plate appearances right. because he was five he was like half a win ab- he was like half a win above average um on with in base running he was like you know half a win above average uh, in center field, uh-huh. so this is a different type of floor he's creating. Where even though he struck out in like over thirty five percent of his plate appearances, uh, he's still providing value elsewhere. Right, and I, I think it's probably going to be harder for Moncada to do something like that because defensively he's not. Buxton's an eighty runner. Okay, you just stick him in center field and say, okay, go catch the ball. And some an athlete like that, a runner like that's going to provide you with defensive value. Now, uh Moncada at second base, raw, okay, still. Um and indeed the little bit we've seen from him at third base, it's you know, the results have been similar. Now he wasn't moved to third base by Boston for any other reason than because Dustin Pedroia plays second base. So it's not like we have to move this guy off of second base because there's something about him skill-wise that makes that a non-starter. We've tried. It doesn't work. He has the physical tools to play anywhere he wants to. And in fact, if you if you recall during um, Kylie McDaniel's coverage of the Moncada signing that like he was sort of allowed to pick where he started playing um, and wanted to play – he wanted to play second base. Um so there's – I'm not – I agree with what Dave said, um, and I think that there's more to Moncada's uh, – pro. even if Moncada always has an exorbitant strikeout rate, that there's other stuff going on that's going to allow him to provide value. It's not quite the way Buxton does. There's some risk that Moncada is never a good defensive infielder. I think there's, some, there's an argument to be made for him uh, – trying center field <laughs> at some point um, if the stuff on the infield doesn't ever come along. I think his I, ability to recognize balls and strikes is the foundation for value, even if he never you know, makes consistent contact. That's where I think that uh, floor is going to come from, from Moncada. Not from... Uh, the fact that he's got a seven arm or is a seven runner. Now those aren't mutually ex- exclusive skills, right? The difference because frequently it players have a harder time making contact if they do have trouble distinguishing uh, balls from strikes, right? You say, right. oh, that looks like a strike. It looks like a strike, and then you swing. I mean, we saw this with Javier Baez, who you could say, well, he's got contact problem, contact problems, but the version of the Javier Baez that was in the World Series, I mean, he was swinging at pitches that. That, you know that no one could hit. Right, Baez would be the guy who I'd say 
I point to Buxton and say, look at what he does defensively. Baez does that anywhere you put him. So there's like there's margin for error there with the bat. Yes, so that's um but yeah, like we and we talked about this a little bit, you and I at winter meetings. Um which I was glad to be able to spend some some time with you. It was great. It was uh, I enjoyed seeing you. Yeah, I was we had a good time. Yeah. Um and uh but but yeah, like uh this is Moncada is unlike mo like ninety nine point nine percent of the prospects I've ever seen. Um, and I consider him the best prospect in baseball. And I know that I, ha- I lean on upside. Like that's that's part of who I like who I am. And um, like I saw, Baseball America had Benintendi ahead of Moncada on the Red Sox prospect list before he was traded. And I think that's entirely defensible. And if you asked me which of the two I would take in trade in real life. I probably have a harder time picking Moncada over Benintendi than I have a hard than than I do putting Moncada ahead of Benintendi on a prospect list because my you know my job <laughs> security is less reliant on making sure I get a like a good major league player. Um, That's but, interesting. So you yeah. so you can kind of you could you can sell out for upside a little bit. Yeah. Whereas if, if someone – if you're tasked with making a decision, you also have to – you have to be a little bit more cognizant about the consequences of the risk. Right. I think it's easier – it's easier for me to be uh, less less risk-averse in this role than it would be if I were actually working for a team. Um, but uh, – but that's not to say that my decision to put Moncada at the very tippy top of my top 100 list, which is extremely likely, uh, is devoid of logic or reasoning. It's just I'm, I have a different perspective. And the, the speed, the arm strength, the power from both sides of the plate, the body – this is like it's a Mike Trout type of skill set, and I know that the swing and miss is troubling to some. Uh, I will say that Chris Mitchell's Cato projections love Moncada. Have you seen yeah. the distribution of the projected yeah. WAR output for him? It's nuts. Um, so, like, <laughs> it's not as though he has. There, there's no statistical merit here. We're not talking about a guy who struggled to to hit at double a as a 21 year old you know like he he raked at double a at age 21 uh with without having to make any adjustments you know so this is um i feel good about it i understand why others have their reservations i don't discount them uh but uh but i'm all in on this guy and uh i think uh, i'd encourage you to to expand your mind Chemically, if you, if you have to, to try to understand. Have you seen him? Like, what have you seen of Moncada? How much of uh, him? No, have I don't you... think. I, not, not that. No, no. I've seen, I think I've seen. Were you at the. You were probably at the Futures game. You got video of him, maybe. Is that, does that sound right? I've seen him, yeah. I've seen him around. I saw him here in Fall League. I saw him at the Futures game. And I saw him take BP and do all the things, you know, right, one after another with the other elite talents in the game. Um, I saw him at Portland this year against Trenton, uh, actually against um, the guy that the Yankees traded to the Diamondbacks, uh, Victor Campos, who's now with uh, 
Seattle mm. as part of the ta- the Taiwan Walker deal. So like he, I saw him face a big leaguer with it with a good breaking ball. Um, it's not like he was. I saw him against Double A detritus. Like it's not that's not that sort of thing. Um, so I've seen him around and like it's freaky, man. I, I'd encourage you to. <laughs> it is. I'd encourage you to. Even listening to, to to Tommy Chong. No. Tommy Chong recordings recently. No, I, no, not. Um, no, <laughs> not uh, not directly, I guess. But uh, um, it's freaky, man. It is. Is that a thing that he says? Uh, it's probably it's probably in the same. Is it just yeah. a familiar stoner refrain? <laughs> <laughs> the the another another point Cameron makes is in terms of defensive development, <clears throat> uh, and he. We were, you know, we in part we, you know, he cited, we cited Byron Buxton. We also were, uh, we also included Billy Hamilton in this conversation, who I think is probably even more, uh, probably even more like, you know, uh, yeah, there were said, more, there were more red flags about Hamilton's offensive production than there are about Moncada's. Like Billy Hamilton could barely. There were questions about him physically competing at an offensive level in in the big leagues because he was just a stick that could move at the speed of light. <laughs> but um, but yeah, like I saw Hamilton at AAA and was like, boy, I don't know if this guy's ever gonna ever gonna hit. But yeah, like Hamilton would be more of the Kiermaier type of player than than the Moncada type of player. But de- but defensively, because because of course Hamilton was a shortstop, but you know up. Till right. AAA and basically up to the majors almost. Mm-hmm. At which point they're, you know, they moved him to center and of course right. he's become like a plus plus defender there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Cameron was like, well, you, you know, like infield, infield is a whole melange of skills, you know, based off of, uh, you know, there's foot, footwork and timing and hands. Right. Et Hamilton was the arm strength. It was an arm strength thing. Right, but but was you if he says if you have someone like Makata with all that athleticism, uh, just put him out in the outfield and let him track down fly balls. Go he, get fly balls. He meaning me? You you don't have any you don't have any say in it. You can't you can't move you on Makata to no, the outfield. No, I can't. But like it's I it's an option. I think it's an option. You mean moving him to the outfield in general? I think I, at some point, right? If things don't come along defensively. I do think that stick him in center field, and now you've got a seven runner in center field, and let's see what we can make of that. He's only twenty one, yeah. and you'll see when we do the athletics um, prospect list that I'll advocate uh, for Fra- for that move for Franklin Barreto like immediately. <laughs> he has a sort of athleticism that would play in the outfield, but maybe. Uh, for whatever reason, he lacks the skills for the right. Infield. He is straight line speed, I think, to play center field, but does not have an infielder's actions for me. Now, the organization he plays for clearly has a different idea than than me about what constitutes a good defensive infielder, specifically at shortstop. So, like that's that's also at play. Like, there's always a lot of complex variables impacting all of these prospects, right on down to organizational philosophy. One guy might succeed in one organization where he doesn't in another, because teams don't know how to nurture different things while other organizations do, and uh, you know maybe recognize this skill while organi- other organizations don't. And um, it's 
it's it's interesting. Player development's really interesting. Yeah. That's gonna be your epitaph. Would you? But before before we go, this is interesting to me. Like of all the guys who debuted in the big leagues last year, and I'm gonna read you a list of uh, the better some of the better ones. Okay. Compared to Moncada, I just want to know going forward. And yeah. there's no pre- yeah, you will not be admonished for any of this. Would you rather have Moncada or this guy? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Ready? All right. All right. I'm gonna All right. Stick, I'm going to stick to just position players. Are you may, are you writing this down? Should I write this down? I would. I actually would to like to stick my reputation on it. I would. I would prefer okay. to, okay. to stick my reputation on it. So I'm pulling up my list of draft eligible guys for my sim league because that's basically a list of all the debuts <laughs> the, de- the debutants from this major league season. Okay, ready? Well there's all they also listed a baseball reference. Yeah. Uh Yoan Moncada or Okay. These guys are ordered though in my order of preference. So uh for my draft. So no one if you're in my sim league, don't listen anymore. Stop listening. Stop uh listening. Yoan Moncada or Alex Bregman. Or Alex Bregman. Mm-hmm. I prefer Bregman. Uh, Yon Moncada or Andrew Benintendi? I prefer Benintendi. <laughs> Wilson Wilson Contreras. I prefer Moncada. David Dahl. Moncada. Dansby Swanson. Moncada. Nomar Mazzara. Moncada. Moncada. Right. So now we've moved down into the next tier of my rankings. Oh, wait, so what, what was it? So who did I say? I said Bregman and Benatendi, yes. but then Dahl, Swanson. Who I actually have above Moncada on my Sim League draft board right now simply because of the value they'll be able to provide me in the first in their first year. So what was the fourth name, though? Dahl, Swanson, Moncada, and... Wilson Contreras. Wilson Contreras, okay. And by the way, I mean, it's not, I think they're all fantastic players. Sure, me too. Um, okay, so now I'm just going to read you off a bunch of names. You tell me if you take any of them ahead of Moncada. Okay. Yeah. Um, Manny Margot, Orlando Arcia, Jorge Alfaro, Trevor Story, uh, Tim Anderson. No. Okay, I'm with you. Like, I don't think there's anybody else in this list that you could defensively no. say you'd rather have than Moncada. Yeah. AJ Reed, like, no way. Um, so, yeah. All right. I think that I don't think that you have an unreasonably pessimistic view on the player. Like if you would have rather had, say, like Margot or somebody than Moncada, then like now we're at a point where I need to like check you a little bit. And <laughs> but I don't think that you're. I don't think you should be self conscious about your views on on the player. I I'm think not self conscious. Perfectly, perfectly reasonable. I'm I'm entirely proud. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Great. <laughs> okay, I want to ask you about. Wait, no, but let me look. You, you, you maybe did not read all of the names that would have most appealed to me. For example, well, I only I, did position players. Yeah, would I prefer? Would I prefer Mancata or Austin Barnes? You don't want to know the answer to it. <laughs> you don't want to know the answer. I know scouts that oh, love Austin Barnes, and actually well, he okay, moved. Okay. He moved way up the Dodgers list late in the process because of some trusted people saying, no, like, get that guy up there. Let me, let me, let me shoot you another name. Here, I'm looking through all of, all of this past year's <clears throat> debutants. Um, here are some names, here are some names who I would start to think about something, right? Yeah. Gavin Cicchini. I know that's not going to be very no. popular in your mind. No. <laughs> 
No. That's a hard no, Carson. <laughs> That's a guy that, like, I wish you would have been here in Fall League so you could have seen him and been like, oh, oh, no. Uh, no. <laughs> is it, is no, offense offense to, no offense to Gavin Cheney. I'm sorry, dude. If you listen to this, I'm really sorry. But, like, I just don't – I don't think he's a very good prospect. He's a guy that – um Jeff Zimmerman was here, and he and I went to some games, and he took uh, – he was very interested in – In Gavin Cicchini. Yes. Uh, whereas I was like, don't – don't waste your time. Um, he's just not – he's like a – that's a 40, 40 future value guy for me at most, at most. Really? Yeah. Let's – I see. I want to start I, – I, I, you're – you know – I don't need you to, to I want to I want to stake some of my reputation on some of my wild claims. Okay. But I'm trying to look for the correct means by which to do it. Maybe we just need to have another podcast where we make wild predictions for the New Year's or Christmas. One that no one will listen to. The one between Christmas and New Year's will do. I'll, we can do it from um I'll be in Pennsylvania and we can have a we can each do a bunch of them and talk about them. And no one will listen to it because it's between Christmas and New Year's, and it'll be fine. <laughs> if I'm going to bet that Gavin Shakini is going to have a higher career war than Yamakata, I think I deserve some sort of handicap. Odds? Yeah, sure. What do you want? You want me to... Um... I don't know precisely how it will look, but maybe we could... Hmm. I mean, some... I don't know. Is he going to... What is, he, is Gavin Shakini is going to be under top 100? Yeah, no. Would he be top 100? No. You understand he's been, like, relative like to his levels, he's been young and he's been good and he plays shortstop. Not a shortstop. Okay. Not a, not shortstop. a shortstop? Nope. It's uh, it's second base and it's not the sort of contact profile that I think will play. What is it? What are, where have his Babbitt's been? Yeah. He might. I don't know. Well... I don't want to sway you in the opposite direction before we place a bet on this. Here's here's what I'll do. If we can come up with something where that we have even odds, yeah, I will allow you. We could say you you can say that Chichini will have more uh, career war than Moncada, and I'll say that Moncada will have more war in his peak season than Chichini will have for his entire career. How about that? In his in his peak season, in Moncada's peak season. His top season in the, in the majors, he will have more yeah. WAR in that in that single season than Chichini has for his entire career combined. Then we can <laughs> then we will have even odds. How about that? <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, so you say more WAR for Chichini for Chichini first of all, Cicchini, and he might even be how sorry. Season, so I don't produce say. I don't pronounce Italian last names correctly because I don't I don't think it's, <laughs> I don't. I don't you don't think they're human. I know. You've said no, that before. Yeah. you said yeah. it off air a number of times. I think yeah, it's – I don't, I don't trust you. Italian people. It's something about my <laughs> my Irish-German roots. I just don't trust them. So listen. Uh. So listen. Do you do you think – for you, is there an appreciable difference between Gavin Cicchini or however you would like to say it and Joe Panic? Yes. All right. Because you have to think that. Otherwise, you think that Yon Mankata's top season is going to be more than eight wins, and that's just what Joe Panic has through age 25. Where have Chikini's – what have his Babbitt's been? Yeah, no way. There's no way he sustains that. There's no way. You have to – oh, Carson, you poor bastard. <laughs> we have to figure out – we have to figure out what we're, what we're putting on – 
what, what this bet is going to be. It's not just a pride bet. There has to be some sort of no. I mean sangria. Yeah, glasses. Sangria is probably picture, good start. picture of sangria. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we could have back. We could go back and forth on pictures. We got to do it. We can't. We, I, but it has to be something. Honestly, I would even consider. No, I don't know if I would do that. I want to make bets. We should make bets for 2016. That's what we should really do. Okay. Bets for 2016, and that way, by the end of it, I come down for once. I come down to Arizona Fall League, and then you owe me like ten pitchers of of sangria. <laughs> okay. So we'll do. How about this? We could do. Okay, yeah. So the next time we get together, right. we will have <clears throat> we'll we'll come up with ten bets. Okay. All right. And each bet is worth a pitcher of sangria. Okay, we'll have to come up with some players that we have divisive opinions on, which is fine. And something that which can pay fine. off in the short term, which is also fine. Yeah. But I feel good about this. I do. I think You don't feel is... good as I feel about my thing. Well, fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me go. Okay. Wait, this is my... We I can have to go take a hair dryer some... to my wife at her school <laughs> right now. Well, let's say, let's say goodbye for the sake of the program. Okay. Goodbye. So, thank you, thank you, Eric Longenagen. You're welcome, Carson. So that has been Eric Longenagen, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. I'm Eric Longenagen.